the goal is for us and our patients to forget about the fact that they have even have a back. If you sprain your ankle, you don't always think about your ankle, but often these people with back pain are consistently thinking about what should I do or shouldn't I do for my back. And if we can get them to the stage where they're no longer worried about their back, they're no longer worried about damage or potential damage or the future, uh, they've got confidence to move in their back and they're not really thinking about it and they're, they're doing all the things that they want, that's kind of the, the goal. How do people with persistent back pain move and function differently? That's the question that Kevin Wernley and I explored in this podcast. Now, Kevin is a wonderful person to answer this question. He's the co-host of the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast, and he also authored the paper from protection to non-protection. Now, what we covered in this was what movement patterns and muscle activations did we find in people with persistent pain? And also, how did that change as they got better? As well as covering some of those interesting findings, Kevin shared with us one or two tips that really helped in the consult to help people with their movement patterns during this persistent pain journey. This was a super interesting study and a super interesting podcast. Please enjoy this one. My name is Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. We were talking about this amazing study you did, and we've got a, a few learnings from it, but do you want to give the listeners a bit of an overview of the study and where you got to? Yes, I suppose the study refers to my PhD studies, and I guess the key question we set out to um, answer or understand was how movement and posture relate to low back pain. I guess there's kind of a common belief out there that we should sit up tall and brace our core and keep our back straight. I think that's quite common in society. But when we looked at this in the research, that we wasn't really that clear and we didn't have, there were more questions than answers. So we sort of set, set out to do this, particularly through the lens of what happens when people get better or sort of recover. So there were sort of four aspects of my PhD, two systematic reviews, and then more of a, I suppose, a clinical study where we had 12 people or recruited 12 people with disabling low back pain. Um, and when we say disabling low back pain, their average Roland Morris disability questionnaire was 17 and a half out of 23, which is highly, highly disabled. So an average trial might be sort of around five or six to give some context. So these were people that were off work and had surgery and were still not better. And then we put wearable sensors on them and these sensors measured movement as well as a muscle activity in the erector spinae muscles and then asked them what are the movements and postures you have trouble with and then got them to well we then we measured those on basically a weekly occasion for 22 weeks so for almost six months that 22 weeks was made up of a five-week baseline period where we did nothing we just purely measured their movements and postures with these sensors and then a 12-week intervention where they received cognitive functional therapy and then a five-week follow-up period. So on top of measuring movement and postures during this, like on a weekly occasion, we also asked questions around or collected data relating to pain and activity limitation, a whole bunch of psychological factors, so things like pain self-efficacy, kinesiophobia, pain catastrophizing, back pain beliefs, pain control, those sorts of things. Um, and then also I did some qualitative interviews before, during and after the intervention as well, because we kind of really wanted to understand things from a, from a data perspective and from like movements and postures and biomechanics, as well as pain and function and psychological factors, but also kind of wanted to understand the lived experiences of these people. How do they conceptualize what movement and posture means and, and how it relates to their pain? 
And again, crucially, kind of understanding this from the perspective of what happens when people recover or get better. It sounds like an amazing study. I've never heard of a study like this. It sounds really exciting. I love the the qualitative and quantitative data aspect of it as well. And you mentioned treatment being CFT after that five weeks, if that's correct. What did that look like? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you know, the, the PhD was more about understanding movement and posture and how it relates to pain. So CFT was purely just a vehicle to create change. We could have got anything. We could have got drugs if they worked or, or any treatment. It could, have, it could have been psychological intervention, but we just wanted to create change so we could see what happened with their movement and posture and pain and psychological factors. I mean, broadly, the CFT treatment kind of broken up into, into three stages, making sense of the pain for the person giving people strategies and using behavioural experiments to, to garner a sense of control for the patients and lifestyle factors where appropriate. So, yeah, it was an individualised intervention and, and that's probably important. And it also targeted the specific movements and postures that the people were having trouble with as well. Could you start to explore the findings with us? And I'll kick us off with this one, but you had this in quotation marks about People with persistent low back pain followed the traditional rules. What did that look like for you and how did that come through in the study? Yeah, so I guess that probably comes more out of the systematic reviews that we did. And if you just look broadly, I mean, this is existing research, but if you look broadly at people with back pain compared to people without back pain, they move slower, they're more tense, so they lack a flexion relaxation response. Actually, your back relaxes when you're in full forward bend. They're also just generally more tense during sitting and standing postures or have higher trunk muscle activity. They don't bend as much when they lift things or bend and round. Um, so they sort of adopt this, I suppose, more protective pattern, which ironically looks a lot like the traditional advice that you're quote-unquote supposed to do based on, on all those traditional um, narratives. Yeah. I'm imagining 10 years ago in my first, my first year of physio, we would give like bracing and hold on to your breath a little bit and like don't move as much is that what you mean is that like the rules that these patients were still following potentially totally yeah yeah and that came absolutely came up true in the qualitative interviews people talked about well i'm careful with my movement i'm cautious i'm following all the right advice one of my favorite quotes from one of the participants she said sitting upright makes it worse but i just think i'm meant to keep my posture upright so they're, they're following all these right, quote-unquote right rules, but they're still disabled by, by their pain. Yeah, probably some of my patients from 10 years ago. <laughs> Maybe, and, and some of mine as well, you know, Yeah, where we're right. always consistently learning. <laughs> yeah, and so as the study went on, you had this, this moment where some people started to improve, and what did you notice? Did you notice different things amongst people that improved, or did they all follow the same kind of pattern? Yes, I think in the sec the paper, the single case series paper that's published in the European Journal of Pain, a 2020 paper, we sort of plotted a few of these graphs. But I suppose the benefit of this type of design is you have lots and lots of frequent measures, but in fewer people as opposed to like a randomised control trial where you have heaps and heaps of people, but you usually only have a pre and a post measure. So you have this time period, this black box of like, well, what happened between pre and post? We were able to plot that over time and we compared a couple and looked a couple of those graphs and plotted a few of those graphs in the paper. But basically, there was just such varied patterns of improvement. Some people, like, their pain and function improved heaps straight after the, that first CFT session. 
Others took a little bit longer. So one person didn't really improve. So that it showed a real, I suppose, varied journey. We kind of summarized in the mixed methods paper, which was released a couple of weeks ago, sort of titled From Protection to Non-Protection, sort of plotted this journey that lots of people kind of went through. We tried to sort of summarize what the key themes and things that were coming out of the qualitative interviews were. And it was this journey from initially, like I sort of mentioned, protection, and that was sort of broken up into conscious protection, like I consciously avoid and protect my back, I keep my back straight, I brace my core, all those narratives. But also we heard lots of narratives around people sort of I say, what, what do you feel in your back when you're moving and when you're, you're doing these postures that are painful for you? And people would talk about, oh, it feels stiff, it feels tense, it feels restricted, it feels locked up. And we sort of rationalized that as this sort of non-conscious or subconscious protection that the body was just doing because usually because it thought it was damaged or there was something not right going on, your pain's this aversive experience that makes us want feel like we should protect something. Those sorts of things were really common during the baseline. And then I suppose that kind of journey out of that, for most people, initially it was this idea of like, I've got to consciously, once they had the that, that intervention and they learned that, uh, or that might've had some behavioral experiments that were guided through and found out that actually, you know, it felt better to relax. It felt better to slouch. It felt better to move. They initially had to focus or consciously focus on those non-protective patterns that would give them pain control, that would uh, have reductions in their pain. And then for some, they kind of are sort of, I guess, graduated or progressed onto non-conscious non-protection. So they just progressed onto automatically doing those non-protective movements and patterns again. Again, that sort of summarizes a generic journey. There was so much individuality to it. I think that's quite helpful. And I use that with my patients a lot as well. They're like, they, they sort of say, I'm, I'm trying to do these new patterns and tasks that we work on. And I know they feel better, but I just always catch myself adopting those old habits. I find myself, you know, holding my breath or, or sitting up really braced in the chair. Or when I got to, you know, pick something off the ground, I'm, I'm tense and I'm bracing again. I'm leaning on my hand. So I've got to consciously kind of focus on on doing those new habits that I know and 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 you know we've done it in the session and it feels better but I just need to work on making that a normal habit super interesting uh, what came up for me there was were there any you spoke to individuality and I'm imagining there's some outliers because you have few people but lots of data points as you mentioned were there people where some of that protection switched off but they still had their persistent pain not really. We didn't really see that. There was one one person who she didn't really improve. I think that was multifactorial down to a number of different things, but particularly it was she'd have these experiences in the sessions where she was able to have more relaxed postures, I suppose, and have less pain during her patient-specific functional tasks, but she found it really hard to integrate those into her daily life. Now, we do have data from within the session that we plan to analyze it that's not released yet, but over time, you don't really see much change in her, her movement and posture, and she sort of talked about this real strong aversion to relaxing. I think she was close to 80 or in her 80s, and her whole life, she'd been told, keep your back straight, keep everything upright. So although it quite, it sort of felt a little bit better to relax, and we talk about this in the paper as well, it didn't really sort of physically it felt better, but psychologically it didn't feel better for her. That's the words she sort of used. So it didn't really align with her, I suppose, belief systems. She didn't have those really strong, powerful 
experiences where she had control over her pain. Plus, she had a bit of a latent pain response. So she wouldn't actually get pain during, and that sort of speaks to more potentially other mechanisms, central sensitization, those sorts of things. But she didn't really have that control over her pain. That's super interesting as the one outlier. I imagine there might be more that, that some of this postural stuff would switch off, but the pain would persist. I think I'm just imagining with what we're learning about pain that we could get that stuff to turn off, but it might still be there. Absolutely. There was another patient, patient test. So that, I was referring to patient one then, for those that are, are reading along at home and with the paper. Um, and patient 10, she didn't really move that quote unquote abnormally. I don't really like to use that term, but we'll just go with it for now because there is an average. And she didn't really move that protective to start off with, but she had high levels of pain. And again, that probably speaks to other mechanisms. You know, some people might be quite highly related to this protective movement is kind of a, a key contributor or a key driver in their pain. But for some people, it's not. And they've got other things. And, and she was, you know, off work and highly stressed and had challenging social environments and those sorts of things. So it potentially speaks to other drivers. Sure. Those patients you were describing where they could consciously switch off, but in the rest of their day, they were still subconsciously switching on. Uh-huh. If we were to get in the dirt for like younger physiotherapists listening to this podcast, what are some strategies, maybe one or two tips that, that you found helpful to do with those type of patients in session? Call them out when they do it in the session. And, you know, we're, we're consistently observing our patients as they walk in the, in the treatment room. So make a point of it. It's like, what are you doing there? You know, you've just stood up with, you're avoiding the left leg again, or you're, I can see you're holding your breath again, and then get them to repeat it every time. Patients themselves will notice when they're picking up these habits. And rather than kind of sort of demonize themselves and say, you've done it again, get them to celebrate that they've noticed it. So acknowledge that they've noticed it and celebrate that they've noticed it and then repeat the new way three or four times. So that's a, a the strategy that I picked up off some incredible mentors, Pete and JP. And I think that that really works to drum that message home. And I also think it helps to sort of highlight that this is a process. Initially, you'll pick up that you're doing it the old way. And, you know, you've just got to keep, kind of keep working on it. And eventually you'll get to the stage where, where you have that more normal, thoughtless, fearless movement. I think that's the goal. The goal is for us and our patients to forget about the fact that they have, even have a back. If you sprain your ankle, you don't always think about your ankle, but often these people with back pain are consistently thinking about what should I do or shouldn't I do for my back. And if we can get them to the stage where they're no longer worried about their back, they're no longer worried about the damage or potential damage or the future. Uh, they've got confidence to move in their back and they're not really thinking about it and they're, they're doing all the things that they want. That's kind of the, the goal. But it is a bit of a journey, absolutely. I like the um, thoughtless and fearless movement. That's really nice. Kevin, if you wanted to send the listeners somewhere to find out more about this or your blogs, where would they go? So this Binks Methods paper is a really good place to start. It's also open access. So that, that's called From Protection to Non-Protection. It's a mixed methods paper in the European Journal of Pain. I was involved with the Empowered Beyond Pain podcast as well. So that's a, an awesome resource that patients love. And we had lots of patient voices on that as well. But yeah, those two would probably be the main resource. The other one that I often send patients to is on Pain Ed. If you just Google low back pain videos, Pain Ed, lots of great resources there, including a couple of infographics that take sort of show the journey of the old mindset progressing towards the new mindset. Thank you, Kevin. That's a wonderful wrap of the paper and, and some really good learnings there. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Michael.